All right, Revelation chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10, but like I said just before we started our recording, um, I'm going to do a little recap and finish teaching from where we ended up last week. Um, as you know, last week we talked about the danger of a hard heart and how unbelievers can get a hard heart to the point where they can't be saved. And believers can get a hard heart where they don't lose their salvation, but to the point that God will take them home early because they stop responding to the Spirit of God as He's working either to call people for salvation or to call Christians to a holy life. And so what I want to do is I want to go back to Revelation chapter 9 and look at verses 20 and 21 again, read to you those verses, and I want to kind of take it the next step because I don't want to just talk to you about the danger of a hard heart as a Christian. I want to talk to Christians tonight, and I want to challenge you to not just stay sensitive to the Spirit, but actually put some energy into growing in your walk with the Lord. It's one thing to keep from getting a hard heart. It's another thing to grow and mature. And I want to kind of show you scripturally how that is actually very, very attainable for all of us. In Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, it says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Turn me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm going to read to you verses 9 through 11, and we'll kind of launch from here into a little bit of a study, and then we'll get into back to Revelation chapter 10. I want to do a little bit of a study about the importance of growing as a Christian, not just keeping from getting a hard heart, but actually maturing in our walk with Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, uh, Paul says, he says, or you, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So as we saw here in, first, sorry, in Revelation chapter 9 at the end, these people that God was trying to get their attention did not repent of all these things, idolatry, sexual immorality, and so on. And then Paul, speaking to the church, says, I want you to be reminded that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the reason being is they're not saved. Now, I want to hear you to hear me clearly. I'm not saying that if you've ever done any of these things after you've been saved, that you're not saved. We're going to show you from Scripture that if you live a life like this and you're okay with it, it's really good evidence that the Spirit of God is not in you. But thank God those of us were that way. We've been washed. We've been sanctified. We've been justified through Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to talk to you about not just keeping sensitive to the Holy Spirit so we don't get a hard heart where He has to take us home early as believers, but actually taking advantage of what is already at our disposal, if you will, with Christ living in us. Go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. John is writing to Christians in 1 John chapter 2, and he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. 
Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word is in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, Jesus, walked. So look at what John says. He says, um, children, I'm writing to you so that you don't sin. That's my challenge, my encouragement to you. Don't sin. But if you do, we have someone that's already working on our behalf and has worked on our behalf, and that's Jesus. And thank God for it. So I'm going to ask you a quick question. Of those of you all here that are Christians, and I'm assuming everybody here is, but of those of you that are believers in Jesus and you know you're saved, you know you're going to heaven, how many of you still sin? Good. That's a, that's a good thing, because I had to do a whole different study if you didn't ra all raise your hands. Because back in 1 John chapter 1, he says, if we say we don't sin, we lie, and the truth's not in us. We all still struggle with sin because of this body called the flesh. Yet, listen, and I want you to hear this. If you are a child of God through Jesus Christ, you won't become sinless, but you should sin less. Do you understand the difference? There should be a progression. There should be a transformation. Part of the problem that Paul, I'm sorry, John was dealing with here as well was the fact that there were some in the church who were teaching that because Jesus has died for all of our sins, we are able to do whatever we want. They taught that this form of Gnosticism that the, the, the spirit is good and the flesh is bad. And therefore, since we're now of the spirit and our bodies are going to go back to the dust, we can do whatever we want in our bodies. It won't affect us. And so you can sin. You, could, you can have sexual immorality. You can do all these things because we're spiritually righteous. And whatever you do in your body, it doesn't really matter. And so the, the early church fathers, if you will, and the apostles were dealing with this to say, hey, hey, hang on for a second. Anybody that thinks it's okay to sin... You might want to double check, make sure you have the spirit, because the ones who are actually abiding in him are going to walk like Jesus did. All right. Now, go to first John, chapter three. First John, chapter three, verses one through ten It says, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. I love this. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And I love this part here. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Keep reading. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, and you know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Now, let me stop and clarify this, because you're going to see this term a lot. You all just raised your hands and said you still sin. That doesn't mean you keep on sinning in the way that this is referring to. What this is talking about is the person that says, does the same sin over and over and over and thinks it's okay. And that's you're going to see is the difference. I don't know if you're, I hope you are. If you're like me, when you still sin, does it feel good when you do it? You immediately realize because the spirit of God is grieved. And, and, and sometimes we quench the spirit and we put out the spirit's fire. And, and I know whether when I sin, I don't like how it feels. When he talks here, as you're going to see, about those who keep on sinning or practice sinning, he's talking about those who sin and they got no problem with it. And the Bible says, Watch out for those types of folks. Look at verse 4 again. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. 
Sin is, a law, is lawlessness. And you know what? that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. And no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Are you starting to see what he's saying here? This is all being laid out for us pretty clear. Some of you that know me know I love golf. But I got to be honest with you, I don't practice golf. See, because if I practiced golf, I actually would go to the range, I'd get a bucket of balls, and I would work on it. I'm just not that kind of a guy. I enjoy the game. I love to play it. I don't practice it. I love to play, but I don't practice. Practice is to intentionally try to get better at it, to intentionally work on doing it more. Do you understand? How many of you practice sinning? You better not raise your hands. <laughs> but we are to practice righteousness. Do you see it? We're to intentionally set aside time to improve our game, if you will, the righteousness that we've been given. And so when he says no one born of God keeps on sinning, he's talking about those who practice sinning. All right. Well, let me keep going. Go to 1 John chapter 5. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, we're going to get into this in a little bit more detail in just a second. But again, I want you to see this is said over and over and over. Again, John's dealing with this teaching that had crept into the church that said, because of Jesus' righteousness, because you've been declared righteous, and because you've been forgiven of all your sins, you can do whatever you want, you're forgiven. Now, i got to be honest with you. There's a wonderful old preacher out there uh, named Les Feldick who actually made this statement one day in one of his teaching, and I thought it was scary, but then I realized he was dead on right. He said, if when you share the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ, if someone doesn't say, so you're saying I can do whatever I want afterwards? He said, if they don't have that question, you didn't share the gospel properly. Because the gospel is that we are saved simply by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and he forgives us of all our sins. And if you realize it, that's even the question Paul dealt with. Well, we're going to go see that. Go with me um, to uh, Romans chapter 6. Go to Romans chapter 6. He's just finished saying at the end of chapter 5 that no matter how much sin increased, God's grace was greater than that, and it superseded it. So now he deals with that question. What shall we say then? Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Are, we, in other words, are you saying, Paul, that no matter how much sin there was, God's grace superseded and how much all the sin in the world? So if we sin more, do we get more grace? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Jesus was raised or Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might too, what's that next word? 
walk in the newness of life. But did you catch the word right before walk? Should. Mine says might. Did you catch that? Well, let me, let me clarify a couple things for you from this section, and we're going to keep reading. Paul says, those of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. In other words, this is a further evidence, by the way, that I really believe the Bible teaches without question that baptism is a dunking. The word baptizo actually in the Greek means to put in or to dunk under. It was a picture of when they used to dye cloth, they'd have a vat of the dye there, and they would take a piece of cloth and they would put it in the dye, and when it came out, it was the color of what was in the bucket. In the same way, that's why when people are baptized, they're symbolically put into the water, buried with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. But listen closely. You weren't baptized in Jesus when you got baptized. You were baptized in Jesus when you trusted him as your savior. Because at the moment that you were saved and God gave you his spirit, you were put into him. He was put into you. And then they're in the father. Well, how did Jesus word it? He says, on that day, you're going to realize that I'm in you and you're in me and I'm in the father. You're just swimming in God. And if you are in Christ, you have been baptized in him, buried with him then in his death. Therefore, as Jesus has risen to new life, has he risen to new life? So too you now have. Can Jesus be tempted to sin anymore? No, he has died to sin. And we're going to read that in a second. We still struggle with temptation, but the life he now lives where he has power. And he did when he was in the flesh in temptation is now ours because we're in Christ. Well, let me just keep reading it. Maybe it'll get more clear to you in that way. But he's done this so that we might or should Walk in newness of life. It's available to us, but not every Christian does. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, listen closely. Look closely. Verse 11. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, or the better translation of that word would be your body parts, to sin as righteousness, or sorry, as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your parts to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin shall not have dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace. Did you see what he's saying here? Because of the salvation that we've been received, we have not only been given forgiveness and declared righteous, we have been put in Christ, and everything that is his is now ours. But we have to access it by faith. How did you get saved? By faith. You heard the offer, the message of salvation, how Jesus had come down, being God himself, took on human form, lived without sin, was punished in your place, was crucified in your stead, was risen from the dead. And if you will believe that what Jesus did will cover you, you can give him your life and you will no longer live for yourself, but you live for him. And the Bible says when you trust him as your savior, he comes to indwell you and you're a new believer. 
You heard the message, you believed it, right? You had to act on it by faith. Now, the neat thing is, we don't have to act on that daily in the sense of hoping to get saved still. And I've talked to too many people say, well, I asked Jesus to save me, and I ask him every day. Look, if you've trusted him, you are secure. Yet, the sanctification process is not something you pray one time, but a daily prayer that you have to understand that daily now you have to choose whether you're going to let this flesh win or you're going to let the spirit of God within you take control. But it's also activated by faith. Hearing the message where God says to you, look, I'm in you now. And the same power that I had to defeat sin when I walked in the human body is now available to you. But you've got to let me do it. You have to ask me. You have to believe that I will on a daily basis. Well, how does it say in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to what? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service or your spiritual act of worship. Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, which is living for self, but be transformed by the, I'm going to add a word because in the Greek it actually should be there, by the daily renewing of your mind. That renewing of your mind is a daily thing that has to happen. You just can't go and have a special service. You can't walk an aisle and say, Lord, I'm going to live for you from now on. I'm going to yield my body to you. That's a wonderful thing. But you just prayed it for that day. Because God has designed it that his mercies are new every morning and that daily you must decide, am I going to live for self or am I going to let the one who lives within me have control? And you have to daily lay yourself on the altar and say, Lord, I want you to have control. But folks, listen to me. And most Christians miss out on this. That same power that rose Jesus from the dead now lives within you and you can have victory over sin. And that's why Paul says you choose. You don't let sin reign in your mortal body. First John chapter four, verse four, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now, Jesus, when he walked on the earth, was he God or was he man? Yes, he was 100 percent God and 100 percent man. The Bible actually says that God in James chapter one, right around verse 13, God cannot be tempted with evil. He can't be tempted to sin. Yet Jesus, even though he was God, was tempted, which gives us evidence that he was man. But by the way, did Jesus ever sin? No, he was tempted in every way, the Bible says, that we are yet without sin. I'm tempted in a lot of ways, but I'm not tempted in every way. Some of the horrible stuff you guys do, you rascal people, I don't even tempted with some of the stuff you do. Of course, some of the stuff I do. I heard this one preacher say, he just says, hey, if you even knew half of the stuff I did, you wouldn't even listen to me. He said, but don't get all uppity on me. If I knew half of the stuff you did, I wouldn't even talk to you. So, but we are not tempted in every way, yet Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Well, okay, hang on for a second. How in the world could he live in this body and not sin? He was God. So, does Jesus know how to live in a human body and defeat sin? And he can do it for you and me, too. But we have to ask him. We have to see. We have to practice righteousness. Yes, I'm saved. And if I decide to sit on my couch and do nothing the rest of my life, I'm going to heaven because of by the grace of God. But I might get there a little earlier than God planned. Because there comes a point where God says, as he draws us by his spirit to growth, that he says, you're doing more damage for the kingdom than you're doing good. And he does take Christians home early because of cons consistent disobedience. Go ahead. You're talking about folks that are 
Yeah, all kinds, all kinds. But now listen to me. It's one thing to know you're saved. It's another thing to have it confirmed in your heart by watching Jesus do something in you over years where you become more and more like Jesus. For those of you that have known me since the Palm Bay days, I hope you see a difference in me from way back then. I hope people can see a difference in you, people that have known you over the years. Are you becoming more like Jesus? And that's how we know that he abides in us and we in him if we walk as he does. Does that mean that we still don't ever sin again? No, we still sin. John says, I write to you that, that you don't. But if you do, we got an advocate with the Father. Thank the Lord. We're the children of God. That's what we are. And whoever has this hope purifies himself. So I want to challenge you all to make a practice, try to get better at righteousness. But don't you do it by saying, I'm going to live for God. See, keep reading in, first, in Romans chapter 6, verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God though you, sorry, the, that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. And having been set free from sin and having become slaves of righteousness, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your body parts as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness... So now present your body parts or your body as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you hear what he's saying? You choose who you're going to serve now. You've been set free from sin. You've been baptized into Christ. And that same power that rose him from the dead and gave him the ability to say no to sin in his whole life is now yours. You have to choose now whether or not sin's going to reign in your mortal body. And you've got to daily say when those temptations come, God, by your grace, I need you. I'm going to walk away from it, but you're going to give me the ability to say no. You're going to be the one who does this because I can't. That's why Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, as we wrap this up, I want to point out a couple of things that hopefully will help you along this line. Have you ever, how many of you have ever tried to stop sinning? How'd that work out for you? You tried to stop sinning. The reason is, is we put our focus in the wrong place. Go to Galatians chapter 5. Go to Galatians chapter 5 and look at verse 16. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Paul says, but I say, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You see it? Our focus should not be on stopping sinning. Our focus should be on walking with Jesus. I guarantee you, if you focus on walking with Jesus, you won't sin. By the way, I don't know if you're like me, but I think you are. The times I sin the most are when nobody else is around even though Jesus is there. Because in those times, I don't focus on the Lord. 
I focus on the temptation. And when I try to stop the temptation on my own, I lose. But the more I've made a practice of righteousness, the more I've intentionally focused on the Lord, even in those times when I'm alone. And I am seeing God do a work in me that confirms that I'm his child. You understand what I'm saying? Now, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Actually, no, you're in Galatians 5. Let me show you something in Galatians 5, then I'll take you to 1 Corinthians 10. Go to verse 25. Verse 25 of Galatians 5. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. All right? Now, I'm going to give you a quiz to see whether or not I need to reteach something I've taught already before. How many of you, show of hands, live by the Spirit? You're all afraid to raise your hands. All right, back up. How many of you, show of hands, are born again through faith in Jesus Christ? All right, hands down. How many of you live by the Spirit? Everyone that raised your hand that you're saved, you should raise your hand that you live by the Spirit. Listen closely to me. We hear that, live by the Spirit, and immediately we go, well, I don't really, I don't walk in the Spirit. No, there's a difference between living by the Spirit and walking in the Spirit. Do you see it? If we live by the Spirit, let us also then keep in step with the Spirit. There are two different things. Folks, if you are born again, you live by the Spirit. You have passed from death to life. You have been made alive through Jesus Christ. You are spiritually alive because of the Spirit of God. That doesn't mean you walk in the Spirit. You see the difference? So you live by the Spirit if you're a child of God. And he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us now also now keep in step with the Spirit or walk in the Spirit. We have this power within us, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, the same power that already said no to every sin in this world. And he daily says, Jim, let me have victory over it again. Because not only have I defeated it once, I've already died to sin. And Satan is defeated. And when you stand up against him, he's not too scared. But when you let me take over, he leaves. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verse 13. Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. First off, don't ever think that when you're tempted that you're the only one that struggles with this temptation. There are many other people in the world that struggle with that same temptation. There's no temptation you experience that no one else does. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Did you catch that? God controls how much you're even tempted. If you're in God's child... Satan can't even tempt you without the permission of the Father. That's why Jesus said to the disciples, Simon, Satan is asked to sift you all as wheat, but I prayed for you, Peter. Did you catch it? Satan asked. Why is Satan asking to sift them as wheat? Because they had been, by their faith, declared righteous, and they were children of God, and Satan can't even tempt them without his permission. And God will not allow you to be tempted with more than you're able to bear. So any Christian that says, well, this one kicks my butt. I can't handle this. This one sin, I just don't have, can't have any victory over this. Listen, either you're not saved or you don't understand who you are and who lives within you. All right. Now, at the same time, let me take this and clarify something. 
Many of us have heard over the years, people say, well, God will never give you more than you can bear. You ever heard people say that? That's not true. They're trying to quote this passage and they're totally taking it out of context. God said he won't allow you to be tempted with more than you're able to bear. But I can promise you, God will give you lots of stuff you're not able to bear. Because Jesus himself said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So that means everything's more than I can bear, right? Will God give you more than you can bear? Yeah. It's called life. But he does it so that we will rely on him. So don't let anybody fool you with, well, God won't give you any more than you can bear. And some of you feel horrible because this seems like more than I can bear. And it is more than you can bear. I can guarantee it. But that doesn't mean God won't walk you through it. But he won't allow you to be tempted with more than you're able to bear. But look closely. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is exactly what we've been talking about. When the temptation comes, don't believe the lie that you're the only one that's tempted by this. When the temptation comes, understand the Father has decided whether or not it could come, and he set the parameters, and it's not more than you can handle at that time. And not only that, when the temptation comes, God is right there saying, let me handle it. So, it's one thing to stay sensitive to the Spirit and recognize when the Spirit's talking to you as a Christian, trying to keep you from sin or teach you toward growth. It's another thing to make a practice of righteousness. Don't make a practice of sinning, but make a practice of righteousness. You are going to grow in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ as you intentionally say, Lord, I want to experience everything that is mine. I'm about to go teach on a cruise ship again for the fourth time, and we're really excited about the Just a Preacher Ministries cruise coming up, and I know some of the people are here going on it and can't wait. But there's something about a cruise ship that I like. When you pay your price, a whole lot of stuff is already included, right? And I'm one of those ones that if I'm going to spend the money, I want to get everything I paid for, and I want to experience it all. So you may see me in a restaurant and then at the buffet. It's all included. But listen, because of Jesus living within us, there's a lot of stuff we miss out on in this life because we just still live life in our own strength. I'm tired, tired, tired of hearing Christians around this country when I say, how are you doing? Saying one of two things, hanging in there and doing the best I can. Folks, let me say this to you in love, but as firmly as I can. God did not give us his spirit so that we would hang in there and that we would do the best we could. He gave us his spirit so that we would do the best he could. And that is awesome. And too many Christians are not having anybody ask them to give reason for the hope that lies within them because they're too busy walking around in the flesh, saved, but not practicing this righteousness. Oh, and by the way, don't get judgmental when you start getting better at golf than somebody else. Don't, don't get judgmental when you start getting better at this Christian life. We all learn at different paces. We all grow at different speeds. Some Christians, when they start to experience the power of the Spirit and the growth in the Lord, they have a tendency to start looking down on their brothers who aren't where they are. Don't fall into that trap. But for yourself, experience what God has available to you. I'm going to give you two last passages uh, real quick that I want you to look at, and then we'll get into our study of Re Revelation chapter 10. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. 
I want to helpfully let the Spirit of God burn this into your brain. This work is not your effort. It's you just believing what God has promised, just like how you got saved. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, look at verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Did did anybody catch it? Who's doing the work? The Bible doesn't say you need to love God more. The Bible says if you're going to love God more, you better ask God because he's the one that's going to direct your hearts to the love of God. Lord, not only apart from you can I do nothing, I can't even love you unless you give me the grace. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. You got an area you're struggling with? Ask God to do it and believe that he will and watch what happens. Exactly. That's a wonderful. But it's God that will do it, not you. Let me give you one more. You can write this one down, look at it later on. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. We've already kind of talked about it all already tonight. It says, in the same way in which you received Jesus as Lord, walk in him. How'd you receive him as Lord? By faith. You heard the message. You believed it was true. You asked him to do it. And you walked out believing he had. That's how you walk in him. Daily. You know what he's promised. You know what he said. Lord, I ask you to do it. And I believe you will. I'm going to have a good day today because you're going to be in control. I've asked you to. You said you would. And I'm going to yield myself to you. Watch what happens. Watch what happens. Turn to Revelation chapter 10. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 10. And if you listen as fast as the people did last night, I can promise you we'll finish this whole chapter in the half hour we have left. Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and what is in it and earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it and that there would that there would be no more delay but in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel the mystery of God will be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again saying go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land So I went to the angel and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it and it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. John now says that, he, uh, he's, that another mighty angel appears, and he describes him in his, in his description of him as such that has caused many commentators to say that this is Jesus. I mean, look closely. He's wrapped in a cloud, and the Bible talks about how he's going to come in clouds. His rainbow over his head, and as we know, around the throne of God, there was the rainbow. His face was like the sun, his legs like pillars of fire, his voice of a roaring lion, and he sure sounds a lot like Jesus, but this isn't Jesus. And I can show you from our context and something we've already read in Revelation, evidence that this is not Jesus. This is a very 
powerful angel. Hopefully you understand and we've already seen there's different levels of hierarchy of angels and authority of angels and power of angels and there's archangels and there are cherubim and seraphim and all this kind of stuff. This is a powerful angel and we can see that it's not Jesus because of what is said here. It says, and another mighty angel. Did you catch that? Go back with me to Revelation chapter 5 and look at verse 2. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 2, John says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And as you know, John weeps because there wasn't anybody. And then an elder says, Hey, there is someone. And Jesus steps onto the scene. Is that mighty angel Jesus here in Revelation 5, 2? Obviously not. <clears throat> and then he says, Then another mighty angel. By the way, could you ever use the word another to describe Jesus? Never. There's no one like him. Oh, and by the way, if you ask, if people, you ask people today, who is the opposite of God? They'll say Satan. Not even close. There is no opposite of God. I mean, God has always existed. Satan's a created being. All right, he's already over one. We could go on. God is omniscient. Satan obviously doesn't know everything. Because he wouldn't have done what he had done if he had known what was going to happen next. We could go on. There is no opposite of God. You can't describe Jesus as another of anything. This is just a mighty angel. And one last evidence. This angel swears by someone greater than himself. You see it? He swears by the one who created these things. Go with me real quickly to Hebrews chapter uh, 6. Look at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. It says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. So when God made a promise to Abraham, he couldn't by swear by anybody greater because there is no one greater. Yet this one swears by someone greater than himself. So this mighty angel Jesus... No, it's just a very, very mighty angel. But by the way, this is important. Don't miss this because it's easy to go, okay, it's not Jesus. Move on to the next thing. No, no, don't miss this. This is a mighty, mighty angel. This is a very scary, powerful angel. I mean, the dude's so big, one foot's on the sea and the other one's on the land. And he's described in such a way that he's fooled a lot of people in thinking he's Jesus. That's how powerful and mighty this angel is. That's going to be important later on in our study. So don't lose sight of that. All right. Now, then John says that, it, that when this angel spoke, the seven thunders all spoke. And John, being a good person, obeying what he had been told to do, write down what he had seen. He starts to write what the seven thunders said. And God, the voice from heaven, speaks to him and says, don't write it down. Now, for years, if you get on all the chat rooms and the, and the, and the discussions on the Internet, people have wrestled over what did the seven thunders say. Folks, let me save you a lot of time. We not only don't know, we're not to know. So why would you waste your time trying to figure it out? Because we're human, and we want to figure everything out. Well, let me give you two passages of Scripture. I want you to write them down, look at them later on. I'm going to quote them to you now, and, but I want you to hear, hear what they say. The first one is Deuteronomy 29, 29. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed to us and to our children. Don't miss that. 
There's stuff God knows that we don't know or may never know, and that's okay. But there's stuff that he reveals to us, that's stuff we're to know. By the way, I was doing a study for the cruise, and I ran across where Jesus is talking to the two disciples in Luke 24 who thought he was the one, but then on the day of the resurrection, even though they had heard that he'd risen from the dead, they weren't sure, and they were walking back. And Jesus made this statement, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And boy, my brain just started to jump. I wanted to build a whole sermon on that passage right there. You know what I'm talking about, don't you, James? You see something like that? And I think about how many people today are not willing to believe all that the prophets have spoken, not just about Jesus' first coming, but all that they've said about his second coming as well. But let me give you another passage. Proverbs 25, verse 2. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2. This one says, It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. Let me say it to you again. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. In other words, it's to God's glory for him to hide things from us. Does anybody know why it's to God's glory that he can hide stuff from us? Okay, keep going. Because he's God. Well, how's that to his glory? Because he, yes. Do you want a God that you know everything he knows? That's no glory. Folks, if I could stand here today and tell you, I know everything God knows. You're a little bit less impressed with God now, aren't you? Aren't you? Let's be honest. If, <laughs> if, if you really believe me that I knew everything God knew, you would all of a sudden go, you know, I don't think he's as impressive as I thought he was. We want a God that knows stuff we don't know. We need to be okay with, I don't know. We need to humble ourselves and say, if he's decided that we're not to know, that's okay. And when Job had all those questions, and then God himself shows up and says, you're free to ask any question you want. Let me just ask you a couple of quick ones. Once you're done answering mine, ask away. Job, upon meeting God, was fine if God never answered any of his questions. God himself was enough. And all of a sudden, all this question. How many times have we heard people say, when I get to heaven, what I'm going to ask. I'm going to say it nicely. Shut up. You just don't know. Don't, don't think you're going to just get up there and start asking questions. You're going to be, it won't matter. You're going to be on your face. We have a tendency to try to make God like us. So whatever the seven thunders said, if God says we're not to know it, don't worry about it. All right. We also see the mighty angel saying that there'd be no more delay. And by the way, if you have a King James translation, it'll say there's no more time, right? Anybody here have a King James in front of them? It says no more time. Unfortunately, it's a bad translation of that word. Delay is the better translation because that's where we get this whole idea that there's no time in heaven. It's from Revelation chapter 10 where the angel says there's no more time. Well, actually, the Bible shows us that there's time. We already saw that there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. We're going to see later on that when the tree of life is there in the, in the new heaven and the new earth, it produces its fruit every month. So there has to be a measure of time of some sort. There is no sun and there's no moon because the glory of God will light everything. But there is time in heaven. We don't know how it's going to be measured, but we do that there, know that there is going to be time in heaven. And the angel says there's no more delay. And then he says this, but when the trumpet is blown... But look closely at verse 7. In the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel. Did you catch that? 
As some of you may know, some of you may not know, when the seventh angel, and we'll get to that next week, when the seventh angel blows his trumpet, it doesn't mean that that's the end. Now there's going to be seven bowls of God's wrath. And as those seven bowls are poured out, it's going to happen over a period of days. But as you're going to see, they're going to happen really rapidly and in succession. And all this is at the very, very end of this tribulation period, at the end of that seven-year period. And God is bringing all of his wrath at once. There's no more delay. And everything, listen, the mystery that had been not revealed yet that he spoke to his prophets is going to come to fruition. Now, I'm going to show you tonight that I think the Bible teaches that there are some things that are going to be revealed that we can know, but there's other aspects of it which we won't. And as we get into the seventh trumpet, I want you to be okay with the fact that there's things that we don't know, because look at what it says. The mystery at that time, in the days of the seventh trumpet, the mystery that God spoke to his prophets will be revealed. So that means there's parts of what's going to happen in the seventh trumpet that we don't know, because the word mystery actually means a secret that is, is revealed. We're not going to turn there for the sake of time. But back in Ephesians chapter 3 and Colossians chapter 1, Paul said that he had been called by God and given the role as an ambassador to the Gentiles, as, as an apostle to the Gentiles, and that his role was to reveal the mystery which hadn't been revealed in previous generations to his prophets and, and all, but now was being revealed by the apostles and the prophets in the New Testament, and that this mystery was that the Gentiles... Not that they would be saved. That was no mystery. The Old Testament told that the Gentiles would be saved. But that the Gentiles are actually going to be equal with Israel and partakers of all the promises. And then in Colossians 1, he says another thing. He says, also I was given the role to reveal this mystery, which is not revealed previously in other generations, but now is being revealed that the Gentiles would have Christ in them. The thing that the Jews will be receiving at the end of the tribulation period when they come to faith, we have been given now. The hope of glory, Christ in you. The mystery, which Jesus actually began to reveal it in John 14. He said he's with you, but he will be in you. See, in the Old Testament, the, the people didn't have the Spirit within them. The Spirit would come upon them and empower them, but he never indwelt them. And that was a mystery that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament, but was going to be revealed at this time. It began with Jesus. Paul was continuing it. So if there's a mystery here... Let me read it to you again. In the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So there's parts of what we're going to see as we get to next week in the seventh trumpet being blown that we're not going to fully understand. We just need to know what it says. But I also think that there are some things that will, be, will make sense to us as we are in that time period where I believe the Bible says some of these things that they didn't understand in the Old Testament will be understood now. And I want you to see that by me walking you through real quickly a couple of passages that illustrate this. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verses 10 and 12. Peter says, concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. Look at what he says. The prophets of the Old Testament who were writing about Jesus and his first coming and the glories that are going to follow, they were searching and curious, really wanting to know, when's this going to happen? And all they were told was, not going to happen in your lifetime. It's going to happen in a different lifetime. 
Now, I've shared that with you for a couple of reasons. We're going to show you, I'm going to show you an example of that real quickly in Daniel. But also I want to encourage you with the fact that, remember, the book of Revelation was written to who? The church. The revelation of Jesus Christ to the church. But as you've been hearing me teach, we're not going to be here from chapters 4 through 19. So why in the world would God write to the church about chapters 4 through 19 when it really doesn't apply to us? So that we would be faithful like Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah, even though it's not going to happen in our lifetime, we've been given a role like the prophets of old to proclaim what God has showed us, even though it won't happen to us. You see what I'm saying? Go to Daniel. You'll see it really clearly. Go to Daniel chapter 12. People for years have said, well, if you, if you Christians are going to be raptured before all this, why did God write it to you? Well, why did God tell Daniel all this stuff? Go to Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. At that time, Daniel's told, shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake and some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Did you catch what he's told? You're not going to understand this. You're to seal up these words until when? The words are going to be sealed up until the time of the end. In other words, the world, the, this, what Daniel says here won't make sense until the time of the end. And what is John told? You're going to see it later on in Revelation. John's told in chapter 22, don't seal up the words. In other words, we're in the last days. We're in the time period that knowledge has increased. Men are able to go to and fro throughout the earth. I mean, you do realize that in the last 100 years, the evidence of Daniel 12.4 has happened in our lifetime. I mean, when Paul sailed on his missionary journeys, all he had was wooden sails. A thousand years later, when Columbus sailed, what was the technology for getting around? Wooden sails. But in the last 100 years, we have gone exponentially to men being able to go to and fro throughout the earth. And knowledge has increased exponentially. We're in the days that the Bible said that these things would be understood. All right? Keep reading. Then I, Daniel... Looked and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on the bank, that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. Do you catch it? That sounds familiar. And that when, that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I didn't understand. Then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand." And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, that's the abomination of desolation, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. 
But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Now, don't get all caught up on the number of days, because you say, wait a minute, Jim, it's been 1,260. I'm going to explain all of that when we get to the second coming of Jesus in the beginning of the millennial kingdom, because these numbers here are tied to the cleansing of the temple and many other things that are going to happen at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. All I want you to see, though, is this. Daniel was given all this prophecy. And aren't we glad that Daniel's book is here? Because it helps us understand the book of Revelation a lot, doesn't it? But he was told, it's not going to happen in your lifetime. Not gonna, it's not going to be understood until the time of the end. But the fact that all of a sudden it's all coming together and it's making sense. And we're seeing the nation of Israel reborn and all these things happening. Folks, we're in the last days. And at the time of the trumpet being blown, the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God that he spoke to the Old Testament prophets will be revealed. We're going to understand a lot of it because I believe we're in the days when we can understand it. But there will be parts of it that won't be fully understood until that time. You good with that? Good. You better be because I can't help you otherwise. All right. Lastly, John hears the voice that told him not to write what the seven thunders said. Tell him to go and take the scroll out of the hand of the mighty angel. Now remember, you remember the description of this mighty angel? I mean, the dude's a little scary, right? All right. Big, powerful angel. And God tells him to go take the scroll from the hand of that angel. You and I would go, um, please, sir, um, could you give it to me? But that's not what John does. Look closely. What does John do? He didn't just take it. What does he tell the angel? He tells the angel, give it to me. And the angel does. Now, I want to teach you something here real quickly. Hopefully you'll hear me. This seems stupid and crazy to us right now, and it should. But it won't then. You see, right now we need to have a holy understanding of the fact that angels are more powerful than us and far greater than us. The Bible even says in the teaching about the false teachers, they blaspheme the glorious ones. Be careful of talking bad about Satan and angels and the demons like you're more powerful than them. Mm -hmm. Michael, the archangel, when wrestling with the body of Moses with Satan, wouldn't even bring accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But the Bible does say that at some point, once we are given our new bodies and given our positions of authority to rule and reign with Jesus, we are going to rule the angels. I want you to, for the sake of time, write a couple passages down. I'm going to quote them to you. You can go back and look at them later on. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Hebrews 1, 14 says that the angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. You remember how the, the angels came and ministered to Jesus? Do you know the Bible says that actually angels do that for us right now? We may not realize it. But just like the angels came and ministered to Jesus, angels actually minister to us. Oh, but don't start ordering them around. You haven't been given that authority yet. That's still Jesus's. He sends them to minister when he chooses. But the Bible also says, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to paraphrase it for you. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 3. Paul's dealing with the Corinthian church, which was really a mess. They were all fighting over their different preferences. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos and so on. They weren't even sharing the Lord's Supper together and even considering each other when they took it. Uh, one man was, a young man was sleeping with his father's wife. They were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. 
And then in 1 Corinthians 6, he even deals with the fact that Christians were taking each other to court and suing each other in the public courts. And, and Paul, in the midst of this, says a couple of things. One of the things he says is, look, why not lose the case? Why not be wrong? Why not be wronged? Why not, why not be taken advantage of? Why are you worried about it? That you have to go defend your rights, especially in front of the world. What a horrible witness that is. But then he also says this, why aren't you able in the church to handle such trivial cases? Don't you realize we will one day judge angels? There should be an ability when there's conflict amongst brethren to get it settled. Even if you decide, I trust God. And even though it looks like that person won, I don't care. I'd rather the glory of God be shown than I win. But don't lose the sight of the fact that these ministering servants are those sent to minister those who will inherit salvation. And the Bible says one day we will rule over angels. And John up there at that time was able to walk up to a scary angel and say, give me the book. And the angel says, here you go. But then the angel tells him, you're going to eat it. It's going to taste really bad, bitter in your stomach, but it's going to be sweet in your mouth. And I want to close tonight by clarifying what that all means. And I hope that God uses this to help us really be encouraged and at the same time challenged. The Bible says, go to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, the Bible says that God's word should be sweet in our mouths. And Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. In Psalm 119, 103, go there real quick. In Psalm 119, 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 15, 16, your word came to me and I ate them and oh, it just really tasted good. But I'm going to say it again and you're going to hear it over and over. If you had read the Old Testament and known the Old Testament and you read Revelation 10 and you see the angel giving him a scroll and telling him to eat it, and it's going to be bitter in his stomach and sweet in his mouth, you would have gone, that's the same thing that happened to Ezekiel. It's exactly the same thing that happened to Ezekiel. My last, last passage for you to look at tonight, Ezekiel chapter 2. Ezekiel chapter 2, look at verses 8 through chapter 3, verse 7. I want you to see what happens here, because there's something kind of cool when you parallel what Ezekiel was told and what John is told. Ezekiel 2, chap chapter 2, verses 8 through chapter 3, verse 7. And Ezekiel 2, verse 8, But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, and, and when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. In other words, what was written in this book was not good news. By the way, didn't we already see the angels say, woe, woe, woe to those inhabitants about what's going to happen next? And then he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. 
So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with the scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. And then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech in a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many people of foreign speech in a hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they're not willing to listen to me, because of all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Who was John, sorry, not John, who was Ezekiel told to go and preach this message to that he had just eaten? Israel only. Who was John told in Revelation 10 after he ate the scroll that's going to make his stomach bitter but be sweet in his mouth? Who was he told that he was going to preach to? All the nations. You're going to prophesy about many nations, peoples, and kings. And just like Isaiah was giving a message of judgment and woe and mourning to the nation of Israel, and they're not going to listen, John at this point is told, you've already been writing down everything that I told you to write, and it's being used as a message to the people and to the nations, but I have a little bit more for you to do still. And I want you to take what's written in this book. It's going to make your stomach feel pretty bad, but it's going to be sweet in your mouth. And you're going to be, it's going to be used as you preach now to all these different nations. Now, folks, listen closely to me. Why is it sweet in his mouth and bitter in his stomach? If you're a Christian, you hopefully will understand this. When we read the book of Revelation, how does it make you feel about your, your condition? Thank God. It tastes good, doesn't it? How does it make you feel about everybody else? Sick to your stomach, doesn't it? Tastes good to us. But boy, it doesn't feel good that we got to pass this on to others. When I was pastor in Chicago, there was a, a lady who was married to this one member of our church. His name was Bruce. Her name was Lynn. And everybody in the church loved Bruce and Lynn, but we really prayed every week for Lynn because Lynn was a Buddhist and everybody knew she was a Buddhist. She was very clearly not a believer in Jesus. She was a faithful wife and she would come to church with her husband who was a believer, but Lynn was a Buddhist and would not believe in Jesus Christ. But she came every week and folks have been praying for years that Lynn would give her life to Jesus Christ. Well, one Sunday at the end of the message as I was given the invitation, Lynn literally pushed her husband out of the way, which was not like Lynn. She pushed her husband out of the way and went down the aisle and came down to talk to me. And I said, Lynn, what are you coming forward for? She said, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. I said, well, before you do this, you need to understand you're going to say today that Jesus is the only God, not one of the many gods, because the Buddhists believe there are many gods. I said, you're saying today that there are no other gods, just Jesus. She said, Jesus is the only God. I said, you're going to today stop praying to your ancestors because there's only one mediator between us and God, and that's the man, Jesus Christ. He says, I will no longer pray to my ancestors. Jesus is the only God. So Lynn and I turned around and we kneeled at the altar and everybody knew what was going on. And the church is celebrating. People are starting to weep. They're starting to clap before we even get up because they're excited that Lynn has given her life to Jesus Christ. And as we stood up, I turned her around and was just going to introduce her to everybody. And as I was telling everybody, Lynn's our sister now. Everybody in the room is just cheering. But Lynn is standing there like this. And I noticed it as I looked over and I said, Lynn, aren't you excited? She says, I am. I go, then why is your face the way it is? She said, Jim, 
Now I know my family's in hell. It was sweet in her mouth, but it made her stomach bitter. And that is stuck in my brain. Folks, the days are getting short. We've been given a message to share. Some of this stuff's not going to happen in our lifetime. But we are in the day and age in which we can understand these things. And we've been given the message, the indwelling spirit as well, to help us to understand it and to share it with people. It's going to taste good to us. It's not going to make our stomach feel good when we think about them. But please get the message out. I love you. See you next week.